Section 5 of A Night There Was. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Roger Moline. A Night There Was by Robert F. Young. Section 5. This time, when he reached the crest of the ridge that separated the two valleys, Mallory took an azimuth on the towers of Carbonic. Encephalo fed the direction to easy money and programmed the animal to proceed in as straight a course as possible. In the east, the moon was just beginning to rise. In the west, traces of the sunset lingered blood-red just above the horizon. On the highway below, a knight sitting astride a brown row-horse and bearing a white shield with a red cross in the center was riding toward Carbonic to challenge a twenty-second-century felon Paynim in imitation age of chivalry armor. In the valley Mallory had just left behind him there were two castles named Yore, and soon a third would pop into existence, and yet another Mallory come riding out. Mallory grinned. It was a little bit like playing chess. The forest which Easy Money presently entered was park-like in places, and sometimes the trees thinned out into wide, moonlit meadows. Crossing one of the meadows, Mallory saw the first star, and when at length Easy Money emerged on the highway, the heavens were decked out in typical midsummer panoply. The row-horse had followed its programming almost perfectly and had emerged at a point just south of the lane leading to the castle of Carbonic. All Mallory had to do was to encephalo-guide it farther down the highway to a point beyond the site of the forthcoming joust. While doing so, he kept well within the concealing shadows of the bordering oaks and beeches, where the ground was soft and could give forth no tell-tale clip-clop of hoof-beats. His circumspection proved wise, as in one sense, of course, it already had, and when the false Sir Launcelot came riding by on his way to the castle and the chamber of the Sangreal, he was no more aware of Mallory III's presence by the roadside than he would presently be aware of Mallory II's presence in the shadows of the trees that bordered the lane. Mallory III grinned again, and brought easy money to a halt just beyond the next bend. "'Wit ye well, Sir Jason, that thy hours be numbered,' he said. He remained seated in the saddle, feeling pretty good about the world. In no time at all, if his one-man ambuscade came off, he would be on his way back to the Yore and thence to the twenty-second century and a haircut. Selling the Sangreal without the aid of a professional time-fence like Perfidion would be difficult, of course, but it could be done, and once it was done, he, Mallory, could take his place on Get-Rich-Quick Street with the best of them, and no questions would be asked. There was, to be sure, the problem of what to do about a certain damsel that height Rowena, but he would face that when he came to it. Maybe he could drop her off a dozen years in the future in a region far enough removed from Carbonic to ensure her safety. He would see. At this point in his reflections, 
he was jolted into alertness by the sound of approaching hoofbeats. A moment later he heard a second set of hoofbeats and knew that Mallory II had made his presence known. Presently both sets crescendoed into staccato thunder as the two knights came pounding toward each other, and not long afterward there was a clank and a clatter as Mallory II went tumbling out of his saddle and into the roadside weeds. Finally the single set of hoofbeats took over again, and Mallory III saw a horse and rider coming around the bend in the highway. He braced himself. Before making his play, he waited till horse and rider were directly opposite him. Then he encephalopathed easy money to charge. Sir Launcelot managed to get his shield up in time, but the maneuver did him no good. Mallory's spearhead struck the shield dead center, and Sir Launcelot went sailing out of his saddle to land with an awesome clatter flat on his back on the highway. He did not get up. Dismounting, Mallory removed the man's helmet. It was perfidion, all right. There was a large bruise on the side of his head, and he was out cold, but he was still breathing. Next, Mallory looked for the Sangreal. Perfidion had concealed it somewhere, and apparently he had done the job well. Since the armor could not have accommodated an object of that size, the hiding place had to be somewhere on the body of his horse. The horse was standing quietly beside Easy Money in the middle of the highway. It was jet black, and its fetlock-length trappings were blue, threaded with silver. Otherwise, the two steeds were identical. Mallory tumbled to the truth then, went over to where the black horse was standing, raised its trappings, found the tiny activator button, and depressed it. The croup hood rose up, and there in the secret compartment, wrapped in red samite, lay the cause of the mounting absentee rate in King Arthur's court. Always the skeptic, Mallory raised a corner of the samite in order to make certain that he was not being cheated. Instantly a reflected ray of moonlight stabbed upward into his eyes, and for a moment he was blinded. Exorcising the thought that sneaked into his mind, he closed the croup hood, rearranged the trappings, and returned to Perfidion's side. Dragging the armor-encumbered man over to the black row-horse and slinging him over the saddle was no easy matter, but Mallory managed. Then he picked up Perfidion's helmet and spear and set the former on the pommel and wedged the latter in one of the stirrups. Finally, he mounted Easy Money, and, encephalopathing the black row-horse to follow, set out down the highway, away from the castle of Carbonic. Make-believe castles could fool the hadbends, but they couldn't fool a professional. He spotted the phony towers of Perfidion's TSB rising above the trees before he had proceeded half a mile. After raising the portcullis, he got the man down from the black row-horse, dragged him inside, and propped him against the rec-hall bar. Then he got the man's helmet and spear and laid them beside him. 
After considerable reflection, he went into the control room, set the time dial for June 10th, 1964, the space dial for a busy intersection in downtown Los Angeles, and punched out Hot Dog Stand on the Lumillusion panel. Satisfied, he went into the generator room and short-circuited the automatic throw-out unit so that when rematerialization took place, the generator would burn up. Finding a ball of heavy-duty twine, he returned to the control room, tied one end to the master switch, and began backing out of the TSB, unwinding the twine as he went. In the rec hall, he paused and grinned down at the still-unconscious Perfidion. "'It's a better break than you meant to give me, Jason,' he said. "'And don't worry. Once you explain to the authorities what you're doing in a suit of sixth-century armor, and how you happen to open a giant hot-dog stand in the middle of a traffic-clogged crossroads, you'll be all right.' As a matter of fact, with your knowledge of things to come, you'll probably wind up a richer man than you are now, if the smog doesn't get you first. He stepped through the lock, jerked the twine, and the castle vanished into thin air. Remounting easy money and encephalopathing the black rohorse to follow, he started back toward the Yore, taking a direct route through the forest. He was halfway to his destination and had just emerged into a wide meadow when he saw the knight with the white shield riding toward him in the bright moonlight. In the center of the shield there was a vivid blood-red cross. When the knight saw Mallory, he brought his steed to a halt. Moonlight glimmered eerily on his shield, turned his helmet to silver. His armor seemed to emit an unearthly light a light that was at once terrifying and transcendent. The hilt of his sword was as blood-red as the cross on his shield. So was the pommel of his spear. Here was righteousness incarnate. Here, in the form of an armored man on horseback, was the quintessence of the age of chivalry. Not the age of chivalry, as exemplified by the vain and boasting nobles, who had constituted nine-tenths of the knight-errantry profession, and who had used the quest of the Holy Grail as an excuse to seek after mead and maidens, but the age of chivalry as it might have been if the ideal behind it had been shared by the many instead of by the few. The age of chivalry, in short, as it had come down to posterity through the pages of Mallory's Le Mort d'Arteur, at length the knight spoke. "'I hight Sir Galahad of the Table Round.' Reluctantly, Mallory encephalopathed his two row-horses to halt, and said the only thing he had left to say. "'I hight Sir Thomas of the Castle Yore.' "'By whose leave bear ye likenesses of the red arms and the white shield whereon shines the red cross?' the which was put there by Joseph of Arimathea, whilst he lay dying in his deadly bed. Mallory did not answer. There was silence. Then, "'I would joust with ye,' Sir Galahad said. 
There it was, laid right on the line. The challenge. The death sentence. Nonsense, Mallory told himself. He's nothing but a nineteen-year-old kid. With your row horse and your superior weapons, you can unseat him in two seconds flat. And once he's down, that glorified junk pile he's wearing will glue him to the ground so fast he won't be able to lift a finger. Aloud, he said, Have at me, then! Instantly, Sir Galahad wheeled his horse around and rode to the far side of the meadow. There he wheeled the horse around again and dressed his spear. Moonlight danced a silvery saraband on his white shield, and the blood-red cross blurred and seemed to run. Mallory dressed his own spear. Immediately Sir Galahad charged. "'Full speed ahead, easy money!' Mallory encephalopathed, and the rohorse took off like a rocket. All he had to do was to hang on tight, and the joust would be in the bag, he reassured himself. Sir Galahad's spear would break like a matchstick, while his own superior spear would penetrate Sir Galahad's shield as though the shield was made of tissue paper, as, in a sense, it really was when you compared the metal that constituted to modern alloys. No matter how you looked at the situation, the kid was in for a big letdown. Mallory almost felt sorry for him. The hoofbeats of horse and rohorse crescendoed. There was the resounding clang of steel coming into violent contact with steel. Mallory's spear struck Sir Galahad's shield dead center and snapped in two. Sir Galahad's spear struck Mallory's shield dead center, and Mallory sailed over Easy Money's croup and crashed to the ground. He was stunned, both mentally and physically. Staggering to his feet, he drew his sword and raised his shield. Sir Galahad had wheeled his horse around, and now he came riding back. Several yards from Mallory, he tossed his spear aside, dismounted as lightly as though he wore no armor at all, drew his sword, and advanced. Mallory stepped forward, his confidence returning. His spear had been defective, that was it. But his sword and his shield weren't, and now that the kid had elected to give him a sporting chance, he would teach the young upstart a lesson that he would never forget. Again the two men came together. Down came Sir Galahad's sixth-century sword. Up went Mallory's twenty-second-century shield. There was an ear-piercing clang, and the shield parted down the middle. Aghast, Mallory stepped back. Sir Galahad moved in, sword upraised again. Mallory raised his own sword, caught the full force of the terrific downrushing blow on the blade. His sword was cut cleanly in two, his left pauldron was cleanly cleaved, and a great numbness afflicted his left shoulder. He went down. He stayed down. Sir Galahad leaned over him, unbroken sword uplifted. 
the cross in the center of the snow-white shield was a bright and burning red. "'Ye must yield you as an overcome man, or else I may slay you.' "'I yield,' Mallory said. Sir Galahad sheathed his sword. "'Ye be not sorely wounded, and Sith and I desire not neither of they two steeds, as belike they be as unworthy as they pieces, ye can return to thy castle unholpen.' Mallory blacked out for a moment, and when he came to, the shining knight was gone. He lay there in the moonlight for some time, looking up at the stars. At length he fought his way to his feet and encephalopathed the two row-horses to his side. Mounting easy money, he encephalopathed it to return to the westernmost castle of yore, and encephalopathed the other row-horse to follow. He left his broken weapons where they lay. What had gone out of the world during the last sixteen hundred years that had left sophisticated twenty-second-century steel inferior in quality to naive sixth-century wrought iron? What did Sir Galahad have that he, Mallory, lacked? Mallory shook his head. He did not know. The moonlit towers of the Yore had become visible through the trees before it occurred to him that, before riding away, the man just might have removed the Sangreal from the black row-horse's croup. At first thought, such a possibility was too absurd to be entertained, but not on second thought. According to Le Mort d'Arteur, the fellowship of Sir Galahad, Sir Percival, and Sir Bors had taken both the table of silver and the Sangreal to Saras, where, some time later, the Sangreal had been borne up to heaven, never to be seen again. Whether they had taken the table of silver did not concern Mallory, but what did concern him was the fact that if they had taken the Sangreal, they could have done so only if it had fallen into Sir Galahad's hands this very night. Tomorrow would be too late. Now was too late, in fact, provided, of course, that Mallory was destined to return with it to the twenty-second century. Here, then, was the crossroads, the real moment of truth. Was he destined to succeed, or wasn't he? Hurriedly, he encephalopathed the two row-horses to halt, dismounted, and raised the black row-horse's trappings. He was dizzy from the loss of blood, but he did not let his dizziness dissuade him from his purpose, and he had the croup-hood raised in a matter of a few seconds. He held his breath when he looked within, expelled it with relief. The Sangreal had not been disturbed. He lifted it out of the croup-compartment, straightened its red samite covering, and cradled it in his arms. Too weak to remount easy money, he encephalopathed the two row-horses to follow and began walking toward the yore. Rowena must have seen him coming on one of the telewindows, for she had the lock open when he arrived. Her face went white when she looked at him, and when she saw the grail her eyes grew even larger than plums. 
He went over and set it gently down on the rec-hall table, then he collapsed into a nearby chair. He had just enough presence of mind left to send her for the bottle of blood-restorer pills, and just enough strength left to swallow several of them when she brought it. Then he boarded the phantom ship that had mysteriously appeared beside him and set sail upon the soundless sea of night. End of section 5 Recording by Roger Moline